Welcome to the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast Series. I'm Elle Wisnicki, your host today. Our guest is Erica Stevens-Lynch, Global Supplier Diversity Director at Dow, which is the leading material science company. Dow manufactures plastics and chemicals with a presence in about 160 countries, working with 35,000 suppliers. It employs approximately 35,000 people worldwide. Today, we will be focused on supplier diversity and mental health resources for suppliers. For our audience, a diverse supplier is a business that is at least 51% owned and operated by an individual or group that is part of a traditionally underrepresented or underserved group. So welcome to our podcast, Erica. Thank you for being with us. To begin, could you share with our audience a bit about yourself and about your role and department at Dow? Thank you so much for having me today. I am delighted to share with you about supplier diversity, about what I do, which is really a passion of mine. When I talk about the role that I am doing and the role that I am playing, it's all about having an impact on the communities where we, Dow, do business and where we work. I'm talking about creating circular wealth in those communities. I'm talking about adding jobs in those communities. I'm talking about giving opportunity within those communities. So when I talk about being a global supplier diversity director, that is a member of our purchasing organization, but it represents the entire globe and it represents an impact that we're trying to make in the communities in which we live. And so with that, I just have a true passion about it because you're really talking about changing lives. Thank you so much, Erica. Your passion is palpable and it's wonderful to have someone like you in this really important position at Dow. I'd love to know more about your career journey. How did you get to where you are today? So I didn't start off my career at Dow. I actually started off my career at Occidental Chemical Company. I am a chemical engineer and I went back and got my MBA probably about five years in. And so I wanted to do both engineering and kind of the business world as well. So I started off in engineering. And then when I joined Dow, I started out in the plant. I went from being a run plant engineer to like a production supervisor type role. From there, I was a business supply chain planner where I managed some plastics products. From there, I went into purchasing and I was a labor sourcing manager as well as a capital planning manager. From there, I became a commercial manager in our Dow Services business. I moved from there to corporate real estate for the company. And then I went back to the Dow Services business as a product director. And then from there, I came back into purchasing for the role that I'm doing now as a global uh, supplier diversity. Earlier, a definition of supplier diversity and why it's important. But I'd love to hear from you as someone who works in this field day in and day out how you would define supplier diversity and why you believe it's important, not just for Dow, but also for the employees of these diverse suppliers. So supplier diversity really and truly focuses on woman-owned, minority-owned, LGBTQ-owned, veteran-owned, and disabled-owned businesses. Those five groups are the individuals that we are trying to make sure get an opportunity to succeed in the business world. So when you take a look at those different groups, there are particular needs that each of those groups address. And within those groups, there are going to be different sets of needs, but then there will also be some common needs, just like what you're talking about today with mental health type issues, with other stressors that they experience in life. And so there are some common threads to these supplier, diverse suppliers and what we are trying to provide for them. So when I talk about supplier diversity, those are the groups that we're talking about. And it's really important because if you recognize, they all have been in some way, shape or form underrepresented in industry. And so what this is doing is trying to make sure that they now get to do business with industry. They get to do business with big companies, Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies and the like, and bring their skills, their talents, their innovation to us. And so why is that important? Well, when you really think about most small businesses that turn into large businesses, the only difference between that small and large is opportunity. And so when you talk about the importance of what we're doing here, 
we are providing that opportunity for that small business to become that large business or that small business to build their capacity. And when they do that, that's where you get job creation. That's where you get wealth in your community. That's where you support education because now you have a tax base that feeds into your educational institutions. That's where you create generational wealth as well. So at the end of the day, when we're really talking about why it's important, that's really why it's important. It's what you're creating and the impact you're having on those businesses. I love that. It's all about investing in our local communities, especially communities of color, and just really being able to allow a pipeline and see how those communities can prosper in ways that maybe they weren't able to previously. I love that explanation as someone who cares about thinking about what's the next generation going to look like? How can we think about those kids that are out there right now? Who are they looking up to? What does their community look like? And who are they seeing in those roles that maybe they want to be in one day? So I think about it a lot in that generational wealth, as you talked about, uh, perspective. So now we want to shift the conversation a little bit to um, supplier diversity and mental health. How do you source your suppliers with diversity in mind? So really and truly, this is a shift from how we normally do business. And when I say that it's a shift, it's because traditionally we weren't focusing on diverse suppliers. We weren't looking at supplier inclusion. We weren't looking for new suppliers to do business with in the way that we're doing it now. When you say, I want to make sure that I have a diverse supplier on every bid, that's a change. And when you look at the marketplace, many companies have not been doing that in the past year. That's why these companies are underrepresented. That's why these companies haven't had opportunities. But when we look at how we source now, we are trying to make sure that we are including these companies, those that meet the qualifications to be able to bid on our jobs and hopefully successfully win those bids. Now, when you say, how do you source with diversity in mind? Sometimes there's some extra work that has to be done. And so if I have a widget that I'm trying to buy, I may have to go and do some extra digging to find a diverse supplier that supplies those widgets, as an example. If I'm looking for a particular area of focus, I might have to go and look for local suppliers, as an example, that can help contribute versus finding someone who's national who doesn't even really have a stake in the ground in that community where our plant site is located, as an example. So when you talk about sourcing with diversity in mind, we've got to look at this kind of holistically and figure out how do I make sure that I am being inclusive of diverse suppliers when I have a bid? And that's policy, that's the way you work, and that's the mindset that you have to have in order to include diverse suppliers in your supplier base. I'm really glad we're bringing this to light. It sounds like on your team, you have to be very creative with, hey, maybe we don't have a local supplier. Maybe we need to go think outside the box. And so with that, I want to understand some of the major challenges that your diverse suppliers are facing. And do any of these relate to mental health and wellness? And if so, what does that look like? So there are quite a few challenges that this present landscape has thrust upon diverse suppliers, I would say. Prior to COVID, Diverse suppliers could go to conferences, they could go to different marketplace events, and there would be companies like Dow there represented, and we would be able to match up, link up, and have discussions. So there was face-to-face interaction, you could come and give your business pitch, we could look at what our needs are and try to match those needs with that, and then we could also look at, okay, what are some of the things that we may use in the future? And so it was easier for us to come in contact with diverse suppliers. Well, when COVID hit, all of that shut down. And now you're doing everything on a virtual level. So you have to be more intentional about getting your business pitch out there. So the question is, okay, do I pick up the phone and do a cold call? And while I'm at it, I am cold call number 100 in a day because I also have all of these telemarketers that are calling. I have all of these other folks that are calling. So then how do I set myself apart? What do I do so this person will, one, want to take my call, but two, listen to what I have to say, and then three, maybe set up a meeting to figure out if I'm qualified to do business with them. So one of the biggest challenges as a diverse supplier is, how do I make sure these folks know that I'm out here and what I have to offer? So I want to then put a plug in 
for the advocacy groups. So these national groups that support the five different buckets that we talked about. When we talk about those national groups in particular, and I won't name them at this point, what they focus on is making sure that they have a registry of all of their certified diverse suppliers that a company like Dow can go and search for what we're looking for. So if they offer that widget, I could go to that internet site, go to their database, and I can look up that supplier or look up all the suppliers in that space and then figure out who I might want to include. And so one of the challenges that diverse suppliers have is how do people know I'm there? One of the solutions is make sure you link up with an advocacy group to make sure that companies like Dow can come in and find you. But that's one of the biggest challenges I think that they have in the post-COVID world. The second thing I would say is if I am a smaller supplier and I'm diverse, there may be challenges as far as finances are concerned. Many times diverse suppliers have limited amounts of funds. They have not as much access to capital. And so many times they're making a personal sacrifice based on their own financial situation or based on their own credit to try to run their business. And that is a lot of times an obstacle for diverse suppliers. It is a hardship that they have to overcome. And you say, well, why is that important? Because that's a stressor. If I am using my own personal finances, if I'm using my own personal credit, if I am limited on my funds and then business doesn't go as well this month, I am taking a hit. I'm taking a sacrifice. And that is a huge amount of stress as a business owner. So then you say, okay, with that stress, how does that impact my mental health? What resources do I have? Well, if I'm a diverse business owner, do I even have health insurance, as an example? Am I able to provide health insurance for my employees? What does that really look like? How much does that cost for access to health care? And so when you start really talking about this and really painting the picture of the challenge that you have, you then have to start getting creative with what are some solutions when I can't afford the health insurance or when I have a health insurance that has a premium that's so high that I can't participate? How do I then seek doctor support when it's needed? So I think closing that gap, closing that loop, there's some business type challenges and then there are some health care industry type challenges. And they, I think, face both of them based on their access. Absolutely. If you're someone who is struggling financially and you also don't have health insurance, you also can't see a mental health provider. It just is a cycle that feeds into each other. And so how do you support your supplier? So you mentioned a lot of different challenges that whether the business owner themselves or the employee at that company may have or a combination of those factors. What is Dow's responsibility there? So there are different facets of support that we offer to diverse suppliers. One of those things would be a quick pay system. So when we talk about the financial hardship and burden on some of these suppliers, Many companies will have payment terms that are not really conducive to doing business with diverse suppliers. If I have a payment term that's 120 days, as an example, so that means you do work today and you get paid 120 days from now. You don't even pay your employees every 120 days, right? You might pay them every seven days, every 14 days. And so you have got to have funds coming in so you can pay those employees. So you say, well, what do I do to bridge that gap? How am I gonna get from my seven day, 14 day all the way to 120 days? Well, one thing Dow does is we provide quick pay through supply chain financing. And what that basically means is that you pay a small fee of your fund to get your money early. An example of that, um, let's say I owe you $100 and I'm supposed to wait 120 days to pay you that $100. If you take $99, you can get your payment in 10 days, as an example. Now that is a very oversimplified example, but that's how quick pay works. There's a small fee that's associated with getting your money earlier, but what it does is it allows you then to be able to cover the needs that you have for your business quicker and you don't run so short of cash or cash flow. So that's one way. As you talked about earlier with, okay, how do you get a small business to become a big business? If you're a small business, you don't have the reserve of funds that a more well-resourced business might have to say, we don't need to be paid for 120 days. We can wait. What are diverse suppliers asking for in terms of support? What do you hear from them? And how has Dow been creative in addressing those 
So I'll say that we've not heard so much so about things that they are needing in industry. The basic thing that people are trying to get is opportunity. And that's something that Dow does provide. But also, in addition, skill building is huge. They're not asking for it, but Dow is still addressing it and supplying it. And we do that through mentorship relationships. We do that through industry partnership relationships. And we also do that through working with the advocacy groups. And so we provide training classes in certain areas. We provide one-on-one type mentoring with diverse suppliers so that they maybe need some help in financial type education. We provide some of that by hooking them up with a financial professional within our company, or maybe they need advice on marketing, hooking them up with a marketing professional. Maybe they need advice on business acumen, and we have somebody who can talk with them back and forth about that. So we are trying to capacity build based on the gaps that they may have in their business knowledge or or in the function that which they're trying to come and work as an example. But then when you say on the flip side, okay, what are they asking for then? They may not have an opportunity to ask. And that's the other issue is that if they don't participate in some of these advocacy groups, if they don't come to some of the conferences where they come in contact with companies like Dow, if they don't participate in some of these job fair type setups, then they will not have access to be able to even ask for what it is that they need as far as support is concerned. So then you start getting into this whole issue of mental health. When you start getting into how do I help my employees? How do I deal with workplace stress? How do I you know, do all of these other functions? They also then cannot get information on how to be a part of like group insurance plans. So if this national agency has a group insurance plan, maybe I join on to that because it's going to be cheaper than me trying to get insurance for my employees by themselves, as an example. Or maybe there are other mental health offerings where you can pay into counseling services and then your people can pay a smaller fee because counseling services are provided here. Or maybe there's even information out there on some of the free clinics and free mental health providers that are out there that's provided by the city and the state and government as far as that's concerned, and them being able to find out how to tap into some of those resources. Many times, if you are an island to yourself, you don't know where to turn, you don't know where to go and get that information, and you don't even have a link of who to be able to ask. And so overcoming the hurdle and the challenges by not being directly by yourself and joining some of those agencies, I think would be the right way to go, because now you have access to information and opportunities that you wouldn't have stand alone. That makes so much sense. If you could expand a little bit more on what is the responsibility of a larger company or more well-resourced company? How do you see the responsibility of helping smaller businesses to ensure that they're providing those opportunities with agencies or, as you mentioned, the professional employment organizations that you can join up with to get health insurance or counseling resources. Is it the responsibility of a large organization to send those resources to their diverse suppliers, help them get linked up with them? Are companies in general doing a lot of support for diverse suppliers or is it really still small? So I would say that companies have a great responsibility in connecting diverse suppliers with some of these national advocacy groups. And what I mean by that is if I am a company like Dow, when I want to do business with a diverse supplier, one of the first things I look at is, are you certified? Well, you say, well, I don't know what certified diverse is, or I don't know what that means. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to explain to you what certification means. And the second, I'm going to tell you where you can go and get that certification. And guess what? Where you go is that national advocacy group. And you say, why do I need to be certified? Well, that's where you come in contact then with all of those resources that we just talked about, because those advocacy groups are going to provide education. They're going to have different folks that come in that can provide capital and financing to your business. They have connections with small business association as an example, and they run seminars to teach you how to go and get some of that help. They have the registry that the companies like Dow go and look at when we're looking for diverse suppliers. They have all kinds of resources there for peer matching as well as industry matching. And so the way we fulfill that obligation is we send you right back to those advocacy groups and say, hey, this is where you start. This is how you start to be able to qualify to do business with companies like us. And that helps you to help 
stabilize and solidify your business. The other thing that I would say is that if, if a company says, hey, we don't really want to join a certifying body like that. We want to do something different or we have a registration with the state already. Okay. We can take a look at your state registration and we can accept your state registration. But in particular, what you miss out on with that is, again, those partnerships and that access to information that you probably won't get from the state agency. So will we take that certification? Absolutely. But again, when you start talking about that networking and talk about the information flow and those connections, you're going to have to do something different than just that state agency. So I think big companies, we have a big role to play in this, but then also there is some, some role and responsibility on the diverse suppliers to try to gain access to those groups and understand what those groups offer and be open to joining those groups to come in contact with that information. Are those advocacy groups facing any challenges themselves? Are they nonprofits? So they are nonprofits based on what I understand and know, and I can be corrected on that. But basically, there are fees associated with being a member, but those fees are really and truly to run the memberships, to run the different platforms that they are actually providing to their members. But what I would say is that the focus for those groups is really and truly for their particular segment of the diverse population. And so, for instance, if we are talking about disability as an example, when we look at that advocacy group that's associated with disabled, it's called Disability In. If you look at that, the things that they offer are things that are catered to and tailored to their audience, right? And for instance, let's say I'm a person who's legally blind as an example, but I'm trying to run my business. There are tools out there that can help you just in functioning in life as an example, and then functioning in business. And they may have, you know, some examples of other people who are doing just that, and they are using X amount of resources in order to be able to do it. And they can make suggestions to you because they have information and knowledge about that disability as an example, and people who are successfully navigating with their disability. That's one small example, but really and truly, you don't understand sometimes what's really out there as a resource for you. And I'll tell you, I attended a conference where there was an individual and she was legally blind. And she talked about the obstacles that she ran into when she goes into someone's office as an example. When I walk in the door, I look around and I'm trying to find a seat. She goes and sits down, but she can't see the stuff that's hanging on their wall. So while if I come in and I'm not you know, blind or have any type of blindness, I can go and I see that they have a sports team on one side. They have a school where they graduated from on the other side. They may have family photos on this side here. And I can say, oh, you have a beautiful family. Oh, how about those Astros last night or what have you, right? And I can make small talk and build. If I come in like she would come in, she can't see any of that kind of stuff. So she's got to get straight to business. She's got to just talk about what she can see and what she knows as far as that's concerned. And so sometimes that could come across as her not building rapport or her not being friendly or those kinds of things, but she's at a disadvantage because she can't see those things. But when she's working in her office and she has a computer, that computer tells her everything that's in the screen. So that computer can say, oh, there's Astros on the wall or there's family photo to the left or there's this, that, and the third. And now she has a clue for what she can talk to that supplier about before they get straight to business. And that building rapport is important. So Disability In can provide information about tools like that, that other folk are using to help get business done, help build that rapport, help start those conversations. So then you can get down to the nitty gritty business that you have to go for. That's a long example, but that's just a way that these advocacy groups can connect you with information to be able to do business more successful. Absolutely. It's those assumptions that we make about people. I think that awareness to understand people live life differently and have different challenges and different ways that they go about their everyday that I can't understand because I don't walk in their shoes. But if each of us just takes a little bit extra time to think about, hey, maybe this person is not making small talk with me because they can't, because they're not able to see the surroundings. I mean, that would help us go a long way. I think we forget sometimes in the business world, that really helps to frame it that way because building rapport is such an essential part of business and networking and building your business. But for certain people who have a mental health challenge or something personal at home, 
it's not possible for them to do that right now. I'm very curious as well to get back to, you mentioned about qualifications and registrations with the state. So I just want to understand from the macro level, you mentioned for diverse suppliers getting qualified earlier, whether that's training or more specific certifications um, or things like that. What are you seeing in terms of challenges with getting qualified? And do you ever have conversations with diverse suppliers? They're interested in working with Dow, but they're not quite qualified. They're missing something. What does that look like? What are some of those missing qualifications? And on top of that, then what's the next step there? How do you tell them, hey, this is what you're missing and this is where you can go get it? So there's two pieces here. One would be certification and the other is qualification. So when we talk about certification, that is certifying that they are who they say they are. So if they're a veteran, making sure that they truly are a veteran, the certifying bodies make sure that when they're giving those claims as an example and that the ownership of their company is 51% veteran owned. And you say, well, you know, why is that important? If I was doing you know, business with the state as an example, or doing business with the government and the government would require a certain ownership as, as far as that's concerned, they used to have set asides that says, hey, I'm going to do X amount of business with this kind of company or with these type of qualifications or the like. And that's why it was important there. When you talk about for us in particular, we are targeting to work with certain types of underrepresented groups. And so again, we want to make sure we understand who it is that we're working with. And so this certifications helps to build that base for who we are doing business with. And so that's why we require those certifications. But when you talk about qualifications and the gaps there, one of the things that we see uh, many times with diverse suppliers is that people have a perception that diverse suppliers are not going to be qualified or that they're going to be accepting a certain amount of risk because they're using a diverse supplier. And that is a total misconception. In particular, it doesn't mean that diverse suppliers are not qualified. And even it doesn't mean that just because they're small that they can't satisfy the need that you have. Now, when I talk about gaps, though, when you're dealing with larger companies, sometimes our need is great. So for instance, if I am dealing with a diverse supplier that has a trucking company, this diverse supplier may have five trucks, 10 trucks, maybe 20 trucks as an example. But if I'm working on any given plant site of mine, I might need 150, 200 trucks, 300 trucks, the like. And so how then do I use this diverse supplier to meet my need? That's where some of the gaps come in and where we have to be creative because I've got a need for 300. You only have 20. Do I just segment off 20 here, 20 there, 20 there, 20? And now I'm managing a whole bunch of contracts and those kinds of things. Or do I go to a supplier that has a 300? I manage one contract. I manage one set of performance and the like. So you can see where when you're smaller, sometimes you can't fulfill the entire need. And then it often makes you get overlooked because the need that someone has is much greater. So when we talk about supplier diversity, what we then have to do is say, okay, maybe we use the larger company and a smaller company. You take away the risk, but you're also giving that smaller company this opportunity just like you would the others. That's a great idea. Is that something common in the space? Who is the pioneer of that idea? Or is that just a small example of lots of different creative ideas and ways to give smaller um, diverse suppliers an opportunity to start? I think it's a small example of of giving them opportunities and ways to start. But what I can say, though, is if I look back at the history of supplier diversity and how it started and how it evolved, if I take the automotive industry as an example, back in the 1970s when supplier diversity started out, it was a government mandated kind of activity that they were doing with the automotive industry. And if you wanted to get X amount of money from the government to do business, you had to work with X percent of diverse suppliers. And it came back, hey, we don't have diverse suppliers to work with in this space, or they don't have the capacity. They're not. And the government said, tough luck, babes. Go out there and build it. Build that capacity. So if he only has two trucks, well, maybe you help him get 10, and then he can do business with you. You support him, you grow him, and you give him that opportunity. Maybe she only has... 10 widgets and she needs 30 to do business with you. Okay, go loan, lend her the money so that she can go and get 30 widgets instead of 10 and she can do business with you. 
back then it was all about capacity building, growing those diverse suppliers, helping them to be equipped to do business with that industry. And that was a perfect example of big business helping small business to grow and then creating those partnerships that you need to see. Now, shift from that to where we are now, it's quite a bit different. There's no government mandates for that and all of that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, we still ought to be looking at how do we build capacity? How do we help them to be able to grow and be able to do business with industry like, like us, right? And that is, I think, sometimes a misconception because you say if they have this, we give them this. But it's okay, wait a minute. Why do we only give them this? Maybe I, I fill up all 10 of the trucks you have, and that gives you the ability to go get 10 more. Maybe I fill up those 10 now. So now you have 20 trucks filled. Now you go get 10 more, as an example. We got to focus on taking people from where they are to where they're trying to go or building that capacity so that they can better work with us. Honestly, I just I hear you talk about this, and I just get excited because it's it's all about building and growing and supporting. And I love that it came from like the government. I love that there was a mandate and it was like, tough luck, figure it out. You got to help your neighbor. You got to help your fellow companies. And I'm really curious, how have you seen support for diverse suppliers increase over your time in the industry? And if you could give a little bit more about the history you mentioned with the government requiring it, when was that? What years, if you happen to know? I don't remember the years, but I know it was under President Carter when this came about. So if you look at when he was around, then you will know the years, but it was in the 1970s. And it was really with minority-owned businesses in particular. And that's where those mandates came from. And I use automotive as an example because they were the best example of and display of where those mandates meant and that capacity building and growing that, that had to happen. The thing about it is, too, you mentioned something a minute ago. You said, if I know how to, you know, how I got 10 trucks, then maybe I can share what I know with somebody else. And that's the thing is that I think we forget sometimes, and you know, I got my 10 and I'm not going to really tell you how I did my thing because I don't want to lose my 10. But when you really look at the need out there, just logistics alone right now, based on COVID and everything that's happened, I saw an article the other day that said we have over 600,000 truck drivers that are needed to fulfill the shortage in this industry right now, 600,000. So if I have these 10 trucks and I figured out how to do it, there's no way that I wouldn't share with somebody else how to go and do this exact same thing because there's enough out there for all of us to have a piece. And if they need 600,000 more, now I'm looking at, okay, let me not only share what I know, but maybe how do I partner with others to get another piece of that pie that's out there for us to get as far as that's concerned. So it's about industry sharing, peer sharing, knowledge sharing, so that we all can grow and thrive. And so I wanted to make mention of that because we were talking about that and you brought that up and that's going to be very important when we get to really and truly how all businesses grow and how we all are successful. And it's going to be learning from each other. So I'm really glad you mentioned Jimmy Carter, actually, because Jimmy Carter created the Mental Health Care Systems Act, which gave grants to community mental health centers to help us get around some of the lack of mental health care that was happening, I believe, in the 1970s and 80s, as well as help provide a new model for community mental health rather than the hospital model that was more challenging for patients and didn't treat patients maybe as humanely as we would like. It's interesting. And if you are trying to provide diverse suppliers with more job opportunities, more contracts, then maybe their employees will be doing better financially. And maybe there's a trickle down effect there for their mental health. And so I'd, I'd love to just ask you more about are there considerations to be aware of when supporting diverse suppliers? Maybe it's around cultural humility and understanding what their employees may be going through. And are there specific considerations for employee mental health for those diverse suppliers? So one of the things I can say is that as the economy grows and then also as it shrinks, <laughs> as far as that's concerned, which we know we're going to go through those ebbs and flows, how companies react to that with their diverse suppliers is going to be very important. So when you look at, you know, when things are thriving, companies are doing big projects, they're spending lots of money. And so therefore they have the ability to employ diverse suppliers as well as their other suppliers in ways that they don't do when the economy is down. But if you look at the effect on a diverse supplier, 
let's just say I'm a supplier of engineers for projects. In the good times, I may have 100 engineers that are employed on XYZ projects that you have going on. And in bad times, I may have two. And so you say, what happens to those 98 employees when there's no projects for them to go, go work on? And so that's where when you see those swings, when you see those ups and down in the economy, you have to, as a larger industry, look at what we do with our diverse suppliers. So I'm not suggesting that we do handouts. I'm not suggesting that you just keep folks employed to keep them employed. But I am suggesting that maybe we consider how we shrink the budget in those areas or how we decide who's going to continue to work on our projects and who's not going to continue to work on our projects. Things of that nature, a special consideration to try to do as least amount of harm to our diverse suppliers as to other suppliers. And you say, well, is that fair? Is that equitable? Is that all of those things? You know, at the end of the day, what we really look at or what we should be considering is the impact to the community when we are impacting these diverse suppliers as well. And that's something where you can truly make a difference as far as that's concerned. When you talk about diverse suppliers' mental health, one of the things I would say is that if those suppliers have people that are working right alongside your employees, you want to make sure that they are stable. You want to make sure that they are healthy and that they are safe to be doing business with you and to be supplying you with the services they're supplying you with their employees. We don't influence at all their health insurance. We don't influence at all the services that they're able to, you know, connect to as far as mental health or health care is concerned. But what I will say is that by the same token, we do want to connect them with individuals that can help them. Again, steering them back to those advocacy groups, steering them to their local health agencies or their county health agencies that can provide services for mental health as it relates to these individuals who may or may not have health care insurance or who may not be able to afford certain types of benefits in their health care plans, as an example. And mental health is something that can impact any one of us. You know, you don't have to be a diverse supplier. You don't have to be in big business. Any individual can be impacted by mental health. And the thing about it is the stigma is still there about mental health. But at the end of the day, it's getting better. But along with that, we've also got to understand what those resources are and be able to help direct people to get the help that they need. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge that you have in industries because we're not focusing on mental health. We're focused on employing people. We're focusing on, you know, the projects that we're putting on. We're focusing on what we're buying as an example. And that's something that's peripheral to all of it. But at the end of the day, that's then where your networks come back in. So this conversation goes full circle and your connection to other groups, other agencies plays a much bigger role so you can satisfy the needs of your employees. And so that's, again, it looks like we've talked about it and maybe we did, but it's coming full circle because, again, we still have to connect back to those networks. So beautiful to think about that and think about how we can just like all give each other a big hug metaphorically. Sometimes it sounds so easy to just say, hey, we're just going to support each other. But I imagine there's been a lot of pushback. And so I'd, I'd love to understand from you, like, what pushback have you heard, whether it's within your own company or other companies in the industry of more well-resourced companies hiring or having contracts with diverse suppliers or thinking about, hey, maybe we don't have the time or the energy to help refer them back to advocacy groups? How have you managed some of that pushback and thinking about, well, now, as you mentioned, the government doesn't require this anymore. So has there been kind of a drop off at all for contracting with diverse suppliers? So... This is a sticky situation to manage, I would say, because when I'm focusing on the supplier diversity, I'm not focusing on all the challenges that they may encounter along the way. Then the question becomes, should I be focusing on the challenges? Well, maybe so, right? But I can't, as an individual or as a company, solve all of those challenges by myself. And so what I do is I have to pick and choose what is within my sphere of control and work within that. 
So when I look at it, I'm working with mentorship as an example. I'm working with capacity building as an example. I'm working with educating them on how to do business with big business. I'm working on matchmaking events to try to connect diverse suppliers with opportunities. And so those are things like that, that I do control, that I can work with. And so that's what I supply. The other thing I do is I partner with those advocacy groups and I say, hey, maybe we can offer a workshop or a seminar on X, Y, and Z to be able to meet a certain need in this area for diverse suppliers. And so whether it's mental health, whether it is access to resources, I can connect with them and say, give suggestions for maybe this is something that you ought to put on for your diverse suppliers and maybe we can partner in this effort as an example. And so there are ways that we can help to influence the gaps that we're seeing out in industry, but it's not gonna be one individual company's responsibility. It's gonna take industry peers partnering together, working together to help advance supplier diversity, number one, but two, the gaps that we are seeing in industry. That absolutely makes sense. So it sounds like a lot of that work is already being done and companies like yours and people in your roles are creating those events and those partnerships, those matchmaking opportunities. So on the flip side of some of that pushback, have you seen any increase in the amount of companies contracting with diverse suppliers and has it maybe ebbed and flowed over the years and what kind of drivers might there have been? Obviously, we talked about COVID, but even pre-COVID, what kind of ebbs and flows have you seen in the amount of companies contracting with diverse suppliers? So I can say that there is definitely an increase in the companies that are working with diverse suppliers now and who are focusing on supplier diversity and also on social justice as well. So when you start looking at, you know, what happened in the wake of George Floyd, as an example, you saw many companies come out and pledge to do business with black owned businesses, as an example, or make a pledge to donate X amount of funds in the community or to make certain type of capital available for people with, you know, entrepreneurs to be able to access so that they can grow their business and different other pledges in that same vein. And so supplier diversity, along with social type initiatives, has gotten a big push over the last year and a half. And it's wonderful. And what I would say is, that diverse suppliers should take advantage of the opportunity that's out there right now and make those connections. Because we are in a time right now where many companies are focusing on just this, right? ESG movement is a huge movement. So when you start looking at that, this is the S, this is that social piece. This is where we're really having the greatest opportunity that I can see over the past few years, because people are truly focusing on that S, that social piece. And so with that, if I am a diverse supplier, I want to make sure that I come in contact with as many opportunities as I can, whether that's opportunities to grow my business, whether that's opportunities to learn, whether that's opportunities to get capital, whatever those opportunities are, I would want to make sure that I'm connecting with that so that I can grow my business appropriately and I can ride the wave that we're on right now to success. There's no guarantees with it, but at the end of the day, when you have more people focusing on it, when you have more opportunities out there that are being made available to you, then at the end of the day, maybe one of those opportunities will land in your lap and you're able to take advantage of those things. And we love that more and more companies are having ESG departments and really talks about sustainability as part of a company's business model to continue to develop and give back to the communities that you're serving and that you're in. It's a two-way street, right? From a marketing perspective and a PR perspective, social impact and social justice are profitable for companies. But then on the flip side, how do we sustain these movements? As you talked about in the wake of George Floyd, we saw a lot of companies saying, actually, we need to do more. But then we also saw a drop-off. And so for me as a person of color, I think a lot about, is it just that sometimes we're pandering for PR or we're just doing these things because we feel like we have to or our peer companies are doing them? How do we sustain these initiatives in the social impact space and make them part of the fabric and the DNA of more companies? I would say that consumers drive business. And so when you are demanding that companies perform in a certain type of way, when you are demanding that they are, as an example, environmentally friendly, as an example, or when you're talking about them having certain social responsibilities, 
companies have to do what the consumers are saying because you are the ones that are buying their products. You are the ones that are spending money. You are the ones that are driving business. But at the end of the day, also, you would hope that companies are abiding by some level of moral responsibility to society that says, this is my impact, this is my footprint, and this is how I'm going to do business. And I can't speak for all companies and all industry and all of that kind of stuff. But if I look at me as a consumer, I make some decisions based on what companies do. So I'll give you a, a good example of that. If I go to the supermarket, and I'm buying things from my house, and maybe it's certain products that I need to clean my house. I look at who make those products. I don't just go and pick one off the shelf or whatever. I wanna know who's making those products and what are they supporting as an example. So if they're supporting voter suppression as an example, I may not be buying that product. And you say, oh, well, when I go, I'm just looking at whoever the cheapest and I pull it off the shelf. Maybe for you at that particular time. But when I go, I'm not just looking at who's the cheapest. I'm looking at what kind of branding that company has. What kind of presence do they have in, in the marketplace? What kind of presence do they have as far as delivering on their social responsibility? And I make decisions based on that. And if you look at how many conscious and awake people we have right now, they're also making those demands on companies. So you say, okay, maybe this is falling off or maybe we're not getting the same look as we were getting a year ago. Well, guess what? You have the power. We have the power because we make the decision on who we're going to do business with. And so that's how you keep that in the forefront of companies' minds because you're still saying, hey, this is what I expect to see and this is where I'll spend my money. And then that's what you know is being delivered as far as that's concerned. Totally. It's also about like that awareness, right? So it's making sure that, first of all, there's transparency in industry to know, for example, if a company is supporting a human rights violation or a, just a social impact violation, right? It's so important to make sure that our companies are transparent and that we're sharing that information. And then if we have the finances to spend just slightly more on a company that's slightly more sustainable, or if sustainable companies and socially good companies are able to still create affordable products for people that are socially conscious and socially aware and aware of those human rights impacts and human rights risks. I think a lot of companies are thinking more and more about doing human rights assessments and having policies in the human rights space, which is really exciting to see. So thank you so much for sharing about that. So just in our last few minutes or so, anything else you want to share that you really want our audience to understand or anything you think that an MBA student or anyone listening to our audience who cares about mental health, who cares about communities of color, who cares about income diversity would want to know or should be thinking about or any next steps or things that our audience can do in their daily life or career? So one of the things that I would say is that, you know, getting an MBA is great, but then you have to say, have to say what am I going to do with it? How do I make a difference? How do I contribute to society? How do I really want to use the skills that I've learned? And so one of the things I, I think is about volunteerism and taking those talent and skills and putting it back into the community. I think about entrepreneurship and starting those next businesses, becoming those next diverse suppliers, creating that business for your family, for your friends, for your community and the like. You know, many times we get out and we say, oh, I'm gonna go and get this XYZ corporate job and that's great. But you can also become that CEO of your own company as an example and provide a service that's in need. And you say, okay, well, you know, there's so many of this kind of company out there, that kind of company out there. How do I find where I go and start this business? You got to look and listen to the needs of industry. So I just rattled off the fact that I had read an article about the, the need for truck drivers in, in the trucking industry. And you say, okay, I can either be a truck driver or I could start a trucking company. Well, who do I want to be as my MBA student graduating? I want to be the person that owns the company. I want to own a string of trucks. I want to go out there and feel that need because if it's 600,000 of them they need, maybe I can provide 10, 20, 30, 50. Who knows? You listen to what's going on, listen to current affairs, listen to the events that you're seeing in society and listen to the needs of industry. And then you say, how do I get involved in that? How do I go and feel that need? What do I bring that's interesting to the marketplace? What skills or connections do I have? And then you go about trying to build them. You go about learning how to fill that void and then look at the success that you bring, not only to yourself and to your family, but to your community as well. 
And it doesn't just have to be you. That's the other piece about it. It's not something that always has to happen to a single individual. Two, three, five of you could get together and start a company. And when I was going and getting my MBA, I remember we did some uh, situational type, I, I forget what you call them, where you start your own company and you do your business plan and you have this idea and you've got to pitch the idea, case studies and all of that, where you pitch the idea and then you go and form your plan. When we finished with our plan, it was actually a great plan that we could go and present to a bank as an example and try to get funds to start that company. Why don't we do it? Why didn't we do it? Because we weren't thinking in the terms of how we could actually take our education and turn that into a reality. We were thinking small into how do I get my next job, not how do I build generational wealth? How do I build community impact? How do I make a difference in society? And so I would just suggest that we start thinking bigger. We become those next diverse companies. We become those fulfillment of gaps in industry. But we also focus not only on ourselves. We focus on others. We focus on the community. We focus on giving back. That would be my biggest suggestion to how do we contribute? How do we move forward from here? That is a beautiful way to wrap up. And I think about that a lot because... Being in the MBA program, it's so much entrepreneurial spirit. As you mentioned, a lot of our classes are around creating a business plan, creating a product, creating a company. And then it's the question of just going back to this whole conversation, thinking about people who want to start a business and maybe it's risky. Maybe they got student loans. Maybe they have to take care of their mother, their father, their loved one. Maybe there's a financial hurdle there and they don't have the same privilege to start their own business. Well, how can we as a community ensure that we're consistently providing resources for future diversely owned businesses, whether that's in the venture capital space, you know, a bank, et cetera. What are the opportunities there for people who want to be entrepreneurial? Because there's so many people who want to be entrepreneurial. You know, a lot of people want to create their own business. It's pretty, as you said, like want to create the generational wealth. Thank you so much. This conversation was so exciting, relevant, especially to mental health for diverse communities, which is the focus of our podcast. Um, So we appreciate you being here, Erica, and so excited to see what else you do in the space and around uh, what Dow does in the space as well. So thank you. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the John E. Martin Mental Health Care Podcast miniseries. This miniseries is part of the Here at Haas podcast. We welcome you to tune into other Here at Haas episodes to hear about different happenings across the Berkeley Haas community. We know that everyone is in a different stage in their own mental health journey, and that's okay and even beautiful. Please be kind to those around you, and we encourage you to care for yourself in the way that feels best for you. We hope you enjoyed our show and welcome you back soon.